And gracious God, as we turn our attention to your scriptures, I pray that you would give us, um, you would help us to be attentive to you and to your spirit. God, I pray that as my words line up with your words, that they would fall on ears and hearts ready to receive them and respond. And God, if I say anything that's not from you, I pray that those words would quickly be forgotten. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Mike. I'm one of the priests here at Truro, and it is a privilege to be with you this morning. I'd like to invite you to open a Bible. They should be back in the pews. This was one of the many post-COVID decisions we had to make was when we could put books back in the pews. So if you don't have your own Bible, there's no excuse. You've got a smartphone, Bible's in the pews, and we're looking this morning at Ephesians chapter 4. We spent the first six weeks after, I think it was six weeks after Easter, looking at the first three chapters of Ephesians. And the last two weeks, we've taken a break in light of church holidays. So we had Pentecost and then Trinity Sunday. And now we're returning to Ephesians, picking up at chapter four. And we're going to follow Ephesians all the way to the end here this summer. It's the perfect place to stop because it is a major shift in both tone and purpose in the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters, Paul is is doing something very specific. He's exuberantly, with all that he's got, doing his best to describe who God is, what God has done for us and in us and through us by the person and work of Jesus. It's cosmic in scope. The language is, is more than we could imagine, as, as Paul tries to plumb the depths of the Greek in an attempt to explain God, his character, and his work. And then here in chapter 4, he takes a sharp left turn. If the first three chapters are God, who God is, what God has done and is doing and promises to do, chapters 4 to 6 is personal application for you And for me, personal application for the church. Ephesians chapter 4 through 6, Paul describes what a maturing life in Christ looks like when lived out. Or, to put it another way, how we are to respond together to who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. The together is vitally important for Paul. For him, it is incomprehensible that one might be a Christian outside of the church. And so in the coming weeks, we'll journey with Paul in the second half of Ephesians as he describes what it looks like for us to grow up into Christ, to mature in our faith, walking in the calling into which we've been called. He starts here in the first part of chapter 4 by explaining that a maturing Christian life, a maturing life in Christ, requires unity. Now, first, a few words about what unity is not. Christian unity is not uniformity. It's not primarily about always agreeing. It's not about silencing dissension. It's not necessarily about unanimity or all looking and acting and thinking the same all the time. Rather, as we'll see, Christian unity is primarily about Jesus, about being found in Christ together, about growing up, maturing in Christ 
together because we can't mature individually. That's not how the body works. It's about knowing together how long and wide and high and deep is the love of Jesus. And then following Jesus together. In the section of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus that we're looking at today, Paul begins to describe what this sort of unity, which is a marker of maturing life in Christ, this togetherness in the way of Jesus, he begins to describe what it looks like with four truths about unity. So let's dive in. First, Christian unity, which is a mark of a maturing Christian faith, requires a certain type of posture. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. I think it is so telling and so important to acknowledge that this is where Paul begins when describing Christian unity and Christian maturity. He begins with what can only and best be described as a posture, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing one another in love. All too often calls for unity are weaponized as a way to squash dissent. And there may be times when a hard line might be appropriate. But posture and tone matter when it comes to our life together. And it's absolutely crucial if we're to be the sort of body, the, the sort of family that is maturing in Christ together. Humility and gentleness here have often been translated as lowliness and meekness. It, it makes us think of a doormat, right? But I don't think that what Paul is describing here is weak or soft, Rather, in a world full of maneuvering for position and power, of manipulating and dominating, of scheming and trying to get ahead or being in the right or self-preservation, Paul describes a posture that doesn't need to manipulate or scheme for the sake of self-interest or self-preservation, but a way of quiet confidence with no need to dominate or manipulate others. Humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. It's like this. The way that Jesus fought the forces of evil and death was by giving up his life, by humbling himself to death, even death on a cross. Bearing with one another in love, Jesus himself bore a cross that we might be one, as our gospel reading told us. This is where Christian unity begins with sacrifice and humility, with gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. Friends, the life of a maturing Christian, your life, my life, our life together, one walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, that sort of life, it ought to be marked by an increasing humility and gentleness, by an increased patience, an increasing willingness to bear with one another in love. 
These for Paul are the first outward indicators of a growing maturity in Christ. First, maturity requires a posture. Unity requires a posture of humility and patience, gentleness, and bearing with one another in love. Second, a maturing Christian faith is rooted in the unity of the Trinity and made tangible in the unifying reality of baptism. Paul writes right here, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We can see right here glimpses of Paul's Trinitarian theology, one spirit, one Lord, one Father. And it's in this unity of the spirit that Christian unity finds its shape, its roots, its, its outline. God himself is a community of self-giving love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, diverse and unique and yet one. And it's into this community, this body of self-giving love for the sake of others that we are welcomed when we're baptized, that we're adopted into, and to which we bear witness every time we baptize a child or a new believer. Just as God's triune nature reminds us of the self-giving nature of God's love, the, the grace of God, so baptism ushers us into a life in Christ, even as it reminds us that Jesus is our only hope in life and death. Baptism initiates us into a community of believers intimately connected to one another, whether we like it or not. It's a visible sign of an invisible reality. We do not belong to ourselves, but to Christ and his church. One hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. For those who are in Christ, baptism, we see it right here in the reality behind it, that in Christ we are made new and adopted into his body. Baptism is the common denominator. It's the sign of the reality that we do not belong to ourselves, but that we belong to God and to one another and are now members of his body, the church. Baptism makes you and I family. Amy, Marami, welcome to the family. This is our identity. Baptized Christians in union with God and one another, not because we choose to be one, but because God is one. And he has called us into a new life in his body, a life lived together. Okay, so first, unity requires a certain posture. Second, Christian unity is rooted in the Trinity and in baptism. Third, unity is enriched by the diversity of gifts given to the body. And it's expressed when the diversity of those gifts are used in a diversity of roles for one unifying purpose, the edification of the body. Paul writes in verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, 
that he might fill all things. Paul reminds us right here, this is what he's saying, that Jesus died, was raised from the dead, and ascended. And as such, as the conquering king, he is the authority, as the one who conquered sin and death and set us, the captives, free to give away the spoils of his conquest. In this instance, gifts to the people of God for our good and for his glory. Gifts that aren't earned but received, gifted to us, not for ourselves, but for the edification of the body. And Paul says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. As Paul explains elsewhere, Jesus gives us, by his spirit, a great diversity of gifts, just as he describes the diversity of roles here. Apostles, those sent to establish and lead new communities of faith. Prophets, those given special insight to encourage the, the body to grow. Evangelists, those gifted to lead others into the community of Jesus. Shepherds and teachers, those gifted to serve, teach, and care for the body. Now, friends, this list is not meant to be exhaustive, but it is descriptive, and it illustrates Paul's point. Unity is enriched by a diversity of gifts and roles and strengthened when the body operates in those gifts and roles, as he notes in verse 12, for the building up of the body. Maturing Christians are aware of the gifts that God has given them, and they use them not for their own gain or position, but with humility and gentleness for the good of the body. Furthermore, maturing Christians recognize the gifts and roles that God has given others, and they know that this diversity of gifts is a blessing, each given gifts and roles, different gifts and roles, to be used for the sake of others. It's like a symphony. A symphony needs percussion, a symphony needs strings, a percussion needs brass, a symphony needs woodwinds. My brother-in-law is a professional trombone player, and when I listen to him practice, there are parts that sound impressive, and then there's a lot of parts where it seems like he's just counting and waiting, and then parts where he's blasting because he's a trombone, and parts where he's quiet, and taken by itself, I mean, it's beautiful because he's really good, but it doesn't really make that much sense. But when you put it all together, the trombone and Joe on the percussion, all these different pieces, what emerges makes sense, doesn't it? It's beautiful. It's, it's edifying. It's creative. It's a blessing to others. It, it draws us in while at the same time drawing us up. And friends, that's how the body of Christ is supposed to work. Your gifts and your gifts and my gifts, not the same. In and of themselves, I mean, they might be good and useful and helpful, but not nearly the same as when you put them all together, the body working in unison for the good of the whole. Unity, not uniformity. And so Christian unity expects, requires, acknowledges the breadth of gifts, welcomes them for the good of the whole. 
And so in response to all that God has done in us and for us, maturing Christians share a posture of un- a unity of posture, humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Maturing Christians remain rooted in the triune God, ever aware of our baptismal identity. Maturing Christians are aware of the gifts that God has given them and others. And they use these gifts, we use these gifts like a symphony for the good of the body and the glory of God. And that brings us to verses 13 to 16 in our fourth and final point. Paul writes, Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure, the stature of the fullness of God, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The goal of all this unity of the faith and of knowledge of Jesus, that, that's the goal. A faith and knowledge that is maturing and growing that we might not be deceived or tossed about, but that we might be steady and sure. Paul continues, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Christian unity and Christian maturity is centered in Christ, who holds the body together in both truth and love who has made us one body to be a body, knit together, dependent on one another. He's the one who makes this sort of baptized life together, bearing with one another love possible. Now, a word about truth and love, because it's important if we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. John Stott says it like this. Truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love. Love becomes soft if it's not strengthened by truth. The apostle calls us to hold the two together, which, Stott writes, should not be difficult for the spirit-filled believers since the Holy Spirit is himself the spirit of truth and the first of the fruits of the spirit is love. He continues, there is no other root than this to a fully mature Christian unity. Now, Stott may say that this sort of truth and love shouldn't be hard, but that certainly does not ring true to my experience. My experience, truth and love, holding those two together, is really, really hard. And we almost always get it, get it wrong. Too often, we default to a hardened, mean-hearted truth, or to a soft and squishy love. And neither of these help us to grow fruitfully up into the head together. But friends, speaking the truth in love gets easier when we remember to be humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. It gets easier when we remember that our primary identity is rooted in a triune God, that we are baptized, saved from death, and brought into the love of God, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus done. And that as a result, we belong to one another, members of the same body. And it gets easier when we remember the beautiful diversity of gifts and roles in the church, 
when we use those for the good of the body. And each of those times when we assume that posture, when we remember our identity, when we practice and recognize the gifts, it encourages a truth in love that leads to real spiritual growth. And this is what we see in Jesus, in his life and in his actions, but also on the cross. We see truth in love embodied. Truth as Jesus bore the harsh reality of our sin in his nail-scarred hands. Love in the blood that flowed on behalf of the church that Good Friday. Truth and love all wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus who invites us in baptism into the family, into his body. Look, we can be gentle as all get out. We can be baptized and we can know our roles and use our gifts. And we ought to. It's vitally important. But if Christian unity and Christian maturity isn't centered in Jesus, if we're not growing up in every way into him who is the head, then it isn't really Christian unity. And we're never going to mature. He's the one who holds it all together, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray, help us to be this sort of family. Grow in us a posture of humility, patience, gentleness, bearing with one another in love, that we might grow in maturity. Remind us of the unifying nature of our identity as baptized Christians. Keep us rooted in the self-giving love of the triune God. Pray, God, that you would draw out of us our gifts and our roles, that you would help us to operate in them for the good of the body and for your glory. And I pray above all things that you would keep us centered in you, that we might grow in both truth and love together. And it's through Jesus Christ who makes all of this possible that we pray. Amen.